Today's scripture is from Galatians 2, 11 through 16. Please stand for the reading of God's word. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Before we dive into the sermon, uh, I'm going to take a minute to address some of the things that have been happening in our country over the last 48 hours or so. If you've been unplugged, you don't know what I'm talking about. Friday night, there was a, a group of white supremacists who marched on the campus of the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And then Saturday, yesterday, one of these white supremacists intentionally drove his car into a crowd of people who were protesting against him and protesting against them. In doing so, he injured 19 people and he killed one uh, young woman, 32 years old. And, you know, there are many weeks that things transpire in our country and I wrestle with whether or not to address them publicly from the pulpit or not. I feel this tension. I don't, like, I don't want to ignore big things that are happening in our culture, but I also don't, don't want to neglect what my job is. The primary calling I have as a pastor is to proclaim the word. And so in this day when there's so many issues every single week that pop up, I feel like, gosh, I could probably easily slip into just turning into a social commentator. And I, I don't want to do that. But with this issue and with the, the things that have been building up to it, I feel like I have to say something. I feel burdened to say something. You know, this... What I saw this weekend, uh, to me, just my personal experience, it looked and it felt different than anything that I've seen in the last 20 or 30 years of my life. Um, you know, I grew up in Cincinnati, and every few years, the KKK would hold a rally in the city, and typically this rally was like 20 or 30 pathetic souls dressed up in their costumes, and... They weren't even really regarded. And if they were regarded, at least most of us, we looked at them as relics, as an era that, thank God, we've moved beyond. Like, it's just not a big deal. They're, eventually, these guys are going to die off, and this stuff's not going to happen anymore. Well, what we saw this weekend, what I saw this weekend was something very different, because it wasn't 20 or 30 fringe group people. I mean, it was hundreds of white men Number two, they were, they were all pretty young. 
So it's it's not like these are guys that uh, grew up with you know grew up in the civil rights era and they they the racism that existed then just kind of stuck around and these these weren't seventy year olds these were seventeen year olds and twenty year olds, which means that this this movement of white supremacy it it's not dying down it's actually in many ways it feels like it's ramping up uh, and probably the most disturbing thing of all was these hundreds of young white men marching in the name of white supremacy. Typically, white supremacists, they cover their faces behind masks, you know, or or white bedsheets. And these guys were walking out in the open. No masks, no fear, no shame. Some of them even smiling for the cameras. You know, we live in this very fractured culture that loves to politicize everything to win a few votes. But I want to be really clear on this. This isn't an issue of politics. This is an issue of evil. And one of my callings as a pastor is to call evil, evil. You know, cursed is the man who calls what is good evil and what is evil good. One of my callings is when we see evil, we need to be really clear about what evil is. And so I want to be abundantly clear. Racism is evil. White supremacy, it's evil. It goes against the teachings of Scripture and the trajectory of what God is doing in our world. White supremacy, there's this idea that one group, one race of people is supreme over all others. You know, it undermines what Genesis teaches us, which is that God created all people of all races, both genders, in his image. And because all people are created in the image of God, what that means is all people have dignity, worth, and value. To say one race is more valuable, it's a damnable lie from the pits of hell and there's no place for it in the kingdom of God and there's no place for it in the church of God. You know, the fact that some of these so-called white supremacists, they claim the name of Christ or they claim that they're pursuing Christian values, it's mind-boggling because who we worship here, King Jesus He wasn't a white man born in America, right? He was a man who had brown skin who was born in the Middle East. And we're told that when he comes again to make all things new, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who bow down before him and worship him. We're also told that for those who oppose him in his kingdom, the judgment awaits. And so as we think about the kind of church we want to be, we're in this three-week series talking about what kind of church do we want to be? And I have some very specific things, but I want to be really clear here. We want to be a church where we can call evil, evil. And where we recognize that some people might say, well, that's just a fringe group. It's not just a fringe group. You're seeing this pop up more and more in our country, and it is the burden and the responsibility of the people of God to call evil by name and to stand against it. And so before we jump into the text this morning, I want to pray for our country. I want to pray for our church and pray for, pray for all of us. Let me pray. Father, when we look at the brokenness of our world, we cry out to you to heal our land. We cry out for you 
to move and to act. We know, Lord, that you will not let evildoers go unpunished forever, but we see what's happening. And we pray, Lord, move. Lord, give us the courage to move. I pray that we would be a people that doesn't dismiss things, important things, that we, that we don't just ignore evil that is continuing to grow in our midst. Father, I pray for people of color in the church and in our country who are watching the news and wondering, what does this mean for them? And we're wrestling through questions. How will I explain this to my children? Pray for people who fear, fear for their lives, their safety, any sense of belonging. So Father, I pray with the resources you've given us, with the platforms you've given us, with the relationships, that we would be a church that doesn't compromise on these things, that doesn't shrink back, but it steps forward out of love for you and love for people that were created in your image. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. The text we're looking at today is Galatians 2. Uh, and by God's, pro I mean, I picked this text a little while ago. By God's providence, this is a text that actually speaks to some of these issues, speaks to the issue of racism uh, in the early church. The reason I picked it, though, wasn't just to deal with the issue of racism. The reason I picked it is because I think this is one of the great texts in the scripture that really help us understand what the gospel is and what it looks like for it to work itself out into the people of God. You know, we're doing this series on culture. Last week, we said we wanted to be a culture where grace comes first. This week, I wanna talk about what it means for us to be a church and a culture where the gospel is central. And I felt challenged, you know, even starting this thing up because gospel, you know, if you're in the church, it's a word we've heard a lot in the last few years, amen? Like gospel, gospel, gospel. We hear it all the time. I have to say evangelicals sound like turkeys with lisps because it's just gospel, gospel, gospel. Uh, there's always two. The first get it and then. Uh. But what is the gospel? What does it mean for us to be a church that's centered on the gospel? And I think Galatians 2 helps us so much. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look from here uh, at the heart of the gospel. What do we mean when we say gospel? What's at the very heart of this gospel, this good news. Then we're gonna talk about the scope of the gospel. What are the implications of it in our lives and in our world? And then we're gonna wrap up uh, by talking through, I wanna hold forth three characteristics of a life in a church. Three things that you're gonna see, signs, marks, of a life in a church that's both growing and grounded in the gospel. And so we're gonna start by talking about the heart. When we say gospel, what do we mean? And at the heart of the gospel is, an, is the issue of righteousness. Now, righteousness is not a word that we use very often in our culture. For some of you, righteousness kind of, maybe it sounds like a stiff word, but this word righteousness, it's critical for understanding the gospel. And really, it's critical for understanding ourselves and our world. See, the word righteous, righteousness, it, it means to be as you ought to be, to be right, to be approved, to be acceptable. To be righteous means you meet the standard and you pass the muster. And 
because of that, we, this issue, it's not just a spiritual issue or a religious issue. This is a human issue, this issue of righteousness. Let me explain. All of us, when we look at the world, we have a strong sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Amen? Let's take this week. <laughs> Tuesday, we have the threat of nuclear war. Thursday, we have an opioid crisis, you know, which is devastating. Whole regions of our country declared a national emergency. And then Friday and Saturday, we have this resurgence of white supremacists in our midst. Like, that's just this week. It's just this week. And I think all of us look at that and say, yeah, something is off. I've yet to meet the person who looks at our world and says, I love it just the way it is and I wouldn't change a single thing about it. Like we all know something is wrong with the world. And if we're honest, we all know something is wrong with us. Something is off with us. We look at our lives and we see the greed, the selfishness, the pride, the anger, the hatred, the cowardice, the lack of patience, the lack of self-control. Every single one of us, we look at ourselves and we say, I, I don't want to be the way I am. I want to be better than I am. I want to be different. And that feeling and that longing and that desire, it's a desire for righteousness, whether you realize it or not. And this desire for righteousness, this longing for righteousness, it shapes so much of how we live. It shapes so many of the decisions we make of, of where we eat and what we're going to eat of how we exercise and of how we spend money. If we buy local or we buy from the big box store, if we eat local or we eat at chains, it speaks into that. It speaks into how we date and who we marry and how we do marriage and how we parent and how we make decisions about schooling for our kids. All of those decisions, which you know right here, it's just like, well, we have to make a decision either at a conscious or just below conscious level. There's a feeling of, Will this add to my righteousness? Will this help make me a better person or a worse person? We're all in pursuit of this. It's a longing deep within our souls. Now, politically, the, the left would argue that the path, and I'm being, you know, I'm making some sweeping generalizations. I'm good at that. The left argues, politically speaking, that the path to righteousness is found by being more compassionate, tolerant, and inclusive. The right argues that righteousness comes through personal responsibility, through working hard, and obeying the law. Now, as different as liberals and conservatives are in our culture, what both of them have in common, they share something in common in their approach to righteousness. See, both of them have the belief that righteousness is found in what we do and in how we live. Where Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives agree is that righteousness, fixing what is wrong in the world and in us, is ultimately comes from inside of us. It's something that we do. Now, sadly, religion oftentimes isn't much better. Sadly, religion oftentimes communicates the same thing. How do you be righteous? You follow these laws. You be a good person. I don't know if any of you heard this, me growing up. The question of how do you go to heaven when you die? People said, well, God's got a scale. And on one side of the scale, he puts all of your good deeds. And on the other side of the scale, he puts all of your bad deeds. Anyone else hear this? Like, I have no idea where that came from, but it's not the Bible. 
But this, this idea of the scale is good deeds and bad deeds, and your eternal fate hangs in the balance of your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. That's your hope and your prayer. Again, it's about what you do. It's a righteousness of your own. And so all of humanity from the beginning of time has been on this pursuit. How can we be made whole? How can we be made right? How can we be the way that we ought to be? And through the thousands and thousands of answers, they almost always come back to change this about your life. They're almost always self-improvement. But at the heart of the gospel is the truth that there's nothing you can do to secure righteousness on your own. At the heart of the gospel, the bad news that comes before the good news is that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to make yourself righteous. Like it doesn't matter how compassionate you are, how welcoming you are, how hard you work. It doesn't matter if you fight for equality and you pay your taxes and you pray without ceasing. None of those things can make you righteous because none of those things can make you right with God. The problem that sits beneath the problem of righteousness is sin. And sin, there's a lot of ways you can define it. One of the ways we define it is we as a people, we've been alienated from God. God is the source of all righteousness. And so trying to find righteousness apart from him, it's just not going to work because it only comes from him. Which is why the Bible says sin is not just the really bad things we do. Sin actually infects the good things we do. Even when we do good things, those good things are tainted by selfishness. You know, if I do this, or vanity, or pride, I'm going to do this good deed. Why? So people can see, so they can see that I'm righteous. And so the Bible's clear over and over and over again that nothing you do can make you righteous before God. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at in Galatians 2.16. By observing the law, no one will be justified. If you're going to memorize a verse in the Bible, this might be a really good one to do. By observing the law, no one will be justified. And it's important to note that in the original language, the word justified and the word righteous are pretty much the same word. Justified means to be declared righteous. And what Paul is saying here, and this gets to the very heart of the gospel, is that by observing the law, by what we do, no one's going to be made righteous. But the gospel starts with some bad news. It's filled with a whole lot of good news. And the good news is this, that while we can never sum up enough righteousness on our own to make ourselves acceptable before God, God made a way for us to be righteous by sending his son into the world in our stead. And he lived the life that we should have lived, the perfectly righteous life. He's the only one who's lived a righteous life. But then he died a death of a sinner. And with Jesus coming, what it showed is that ultimately in life, we don't have to climb our way up to God through our good works. No, God climbed down to us. And what he does, Jesus, when we put our faith in him, he gives us his righteousness. He says, here, I want you to take this as a gift. And then he says, then I'm going to take your sin then you can be restored into a right relationship with your creator. And this is why Paul writes in this text, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
so too we have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. You know, studying this text this week, it's kind of funny how repetitive Paul gets. He basically just says the same thing and then he says it again, then he moves a couple of words around and then he says it again and again and again. It's like he's trying to beat it into our heads. It's impossible to be made righteous by observing the law. Righteousness only comes by faith in Jesus. It's a gift that he gives us. This summer I was reading uh, some Martin Luther on my time off, which says a lot about who I am. Like when I have a break, it's like, I want to go read Martin Luther. Uh, and Luther talks about this. And one of the things that he talks about the righteousness that Christ gives us, he refers to it as an alien righteousness. And I don't know why, but that phrase, I just, I love that phrase. Because what he's trying to communicate is the righteousness that Christians receive, it's not something that they find in themselves. It's something alien, foreign, unearned. It's a gift. He also calls it gift righteousness. Like we didn't do anything for it. Like we're sitting there in our sin, don't deserve anything. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, I want you to have this. Here's my righteousness. That's what happens when you put your faith in him. And so this longing to be better, this longing to be different, this longing to be approved. In one sense, it's satisfied immediately in the gospel because when Jesus gives you his righteousness, the father looks down and he sees his son in you. And he says, you're righteous, you're holy, you are pure. He doesn't say you will one day be righteous, holy, and pure. He says, right now you are. And so live in the rat race of constantly trying to achieve and do and all these things to justify ourselves, we can, we can lay that down. And that's why it's called the good news. That we don't have to continue to pursue over and over again, trying, trying to you know, put lipstick on the pig of our own works. And instead we can say, yeah, I haven't got there, but, but Jesus did and he gives it to me and the Father accepts me. And so some of you, you've never heard this before. You might've grown up in the church. You still didn't hear it. You think Christianity is just another set of rules and principles by which you live by. You really think Christianity is just another way that, you know, here, here's the Christian approach to being righteous, which is you just do more things. Christianity is not about bad people becoming good by doing good things so they can get right with God. That is not Christianity. Christianity is about dead people people who were dead to God and dead in their sin, being brought to life by the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ, being declared innocent and righteous, not by works of their own, so that they may know God and that might actually walk into the righteousness that Christ has given them. And so when we say we want this to be a church where the gospel is central, what we mean is we don't ever want to move away from this truth. We don't ever want this truth to get crowded out by other things. We want this to be front and center. What is the gospel? We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That's at the very heart of it. Now, what we see in churches often, and this is kind of what I'm, what I'm trying to get at, churches often become issues churches, you know, or, or they kind of carve out their niche churches, you could say. And so you might have the family church or the youth church, or uh, the traditional values church. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. We don't want to be any of that. We just want to be the gospel church. Like what we want to do is be the church. What's that church about? It's, they just talk about the gospel a lot. 
Like there are a lot worse things that could be said about us. That's what we want. But in saying that, I'm not saying the only thing we care about is the gospel. I'm saying the gospel is front and center. And then this great news, this great truth, it needs to shape and continue to shape every dimension of our lives and our church. See, the gospel sets a trajectory that goes out into every corner of our lives. And this gets to my second point, the scope of the gospel. And to understand the scope of the gospel, you have to understand just a little bit about the controversy that was happening in Antioch. You can get lost in the weeds here. I don't want to get lost in the weeds, so let me just say this. In the early church, there was a group of men named the Judaizers who belonged, other places they're called the circumcision party, which right there from their name, they don't sound like a real fun crew to hang out with. And these guys, they believed in Jesus. They believed everything I just said to an extent. They believed Jesus died for our sins and he died to make us right with God. And the way you're made right with God is by believing in Jesus. But they didn't stop there. They put an and in. Believing in Jesus and obeying the law. If you believe in Jesus and you obey the law, then you can be saved. And the law that they were talking about in particular was the ceremonial law of Moses, all the laws about what you could eat and not eat and touch and not touch and wear and not wear, the laws that declared some things clean and other things unclean. And so these guys are in the church and they're kind of like Christians, but they're kind of not like Christians at all. But they have a lot of influence. And the other church really wrestled with these questions and then God kind of put a stop to the wrestling. He gave Peter a vision and he actually gave him the same vision three times over just so Peter didn't think he was hallucinating. And the vision, you can read about it in the book of Acts, Acts 10. Peter has this vision of a sheet filled with animals that previously were considered clean and unclean. Uh, and to the unclean animals, God said, Peter, go ahead and dig in. And so that's like, you know, bacon wrapped scallops, like things that the Jews up to that point could never eat. And, and Peter's like, no way, I'll never, I won't eat that. I've never touched anything unclean. And God says, do not call things defiled what I have declared clean. And then God goes on to explain to Peter, like this isn't just about, about food, this is about people. The clean, unclean distinction, the reality is you're all unclean. Jesus makes you clean and that's done, that's done away with. And so Peter gets this. And so he starts hanging out with Gentiles. People are ceremonially unclean. He starts to preach with them. He goes into their house, something he would have never done. He baptizes them. And he even begins to eat with them. You know, and if you were here last week, I didn't plan this. People eating together and controversy surrounding eating is all over the Bible. And that says something important, but we'll leave that for another day. But, but it's kind of the same deal. Peter's eating with these Gentiles, which before would have been like, you don't eat with those people. You're going to be unclean but he's doing it, no problem. And then Paul tells us that something happened. These Judaizers, these men from the circumcision group came to Antioch. And when Peter saw them coming, he retreated. Look with me at verses 11 through 13. Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So when these Judaizers roll into town, Peter sees them and he knows that they're going to have issues if they see him eating with the Gentiles. And so Peter just kind of sneaks away. The language used is that of a coward. Peter was afraid, and so he just drew back. Like, I don't want to create any problems. I don't want to get yelled at by, you know, the circumcision group because they can be really serious. And so he retreats. And in his retreating, because Peter was a leader, all these other people began to retreat as well. People saw Peter withdrawing, and the Jews just started dropping like flies from sharing a table with the Gentiles. And Paul says, if you know anything about the book of Acts, it's really powerful when Paul says, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. Barnabas is the warmest guy you could ever meet. Like outside of Jesus, Barnabas has to be the warmest individual in the New Testament. He's a peacemaker. He's a guy who reaches out and cares. Even Barnabas is like, you know, we probably shouldn't eat with these Gentiles. He followed Peter's lead. And while this on the surface seems like, man, they're just arguing, this is like eighth grade cafeteria, like who you're going to eat with and who you're not. Paul said, no, 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 it's a much bigger issue than that. Paul saw that the, the future of the church, the unity of the church was at stake because Peter in withdrawing from the tables, what he was saying is Gentiles, you're second class, Gentiles, you're filthy, You're not clean like us. You might be a Christian, you might not. I don't know if we can really be sure. One thing we do know is you're not as good as us. And Paul sees this, and this is why Paul confronts Peter publicly, openly to his face. Now, what's so interesting is how Paul confronted Peter. And what I want you to see and what I want you to take away from this, and the reason I chose this text is because Paul confronts Peter in a way that's that's kind of different than we would think he might confront him. But if you understand what Paul does here, I really believe it has the power to change your understanding of the Christian life. Because Paul doesn't go to Peter and say, Peter, you're being racist. He doesn't go to Peter and say, Peter, you're being a racist Racism's wrong. He could have gone to some of the Old Testament passages about not showing favoritism, other things. He could have gone and just really nailed Peter to the wall. He also could have shamed him, right? Oh, look at Peter the coward. Snapped a picture with his first-gen iPhone, posted on social media, so-called Apostle Peter. But Paul doesn't do that either. He He doesn't go after it as just sin, Although, let's be clear, it certainly was sin. And he doesn't go after Peter, you know, by trying to shame him. He doesn't do any of that. What Paul does, if you look in verse 14, Paul says, Peter, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. He doesn't say you're sinning. He says you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And you might say, well, what's the difference? And I would say it's all the difference in the world for your growth and life and vitality as a Christian. You see, the way we think the people tend to grow is by just handing them laws. Like you broke the rule, stop breaking the rule. And sometimes it works, it helps. Shame can be a very powerful motivator. 
But when all you do is give people law, all they know to do is attack the fruit. And so Paul could have said, you're being a racist, Peter. And he could have said, you're right. Stop being a racist. Stop being a racist. Stop being a racist. But when Paul says, no, 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 it's not just law. What you really need is gospel. He's going beyond the fruit down to the root. And he's saying, let's get down to the deeper level of how your, your longing for righteousness has led you to this place. He says, let's go to the deeper level and ask Peter why you feel the need to feel superior to other people. Don't you know that you're loved by God? And don't you know that God loves you not because of anything you do, but in spite of all that you've done? What Paul says here is, Peter, you're not living in line with the gospel. You haven't brought it down. You haven't let it get down to your soul. And I think it's important to note Peter's failure here. I don't think it was a failure to believe the gospel. I don't think Peter forgot the vision, forgot everything he'd learned up to that point and said, you know what? I think we're justified by works as well. I don't think this was a failure to believe. I think for Peter, it was a failure to apply. It was a failure to live in line with the gospel, to bring the gospel to bear on everyday situations of life. This is the word for you. A lot of people think the gospel is what we preach to non-Christians in order for them to become Christians. But then once you become a Christian, that's when you move on to deeper things. You know, the gospel is basic. It's elementary. And I remember pastoring. I was five years into pastoring and it was a very young church, but one of the older guys in the church who was 20, uh, so it tells you something about the church, came up to me after a sermon I preached on the gospel. And he said, I love that you guys talk about the gospel all the time but I want to move on to the deep things of God. And I've had people say that many, many times in my life. There's this assumption that the gospel, that's our, that's our sales pitch to get people in the door. And then we move on to the deep things of God, which is deeper theology or, or biblical practices and strategies for how you should live your life. But what Paul shows us here is the gospel is something that we, we never move beyond. The gospel is not just what gets you in. It's what shapes your growth. That's why Paul says, you're not living in line with the gospel, Peter. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? You're ready for Christianity 201. Let me give you a whole new book on how to deal with race. No, he says, you want to deal with the problem of racism? Go to the gospel. And so I think oftentimes, even though we throw the word around so much, we miss the meaning and we miss the power. When people say, I want to go to the deeper things, Peter tells us that angels long to look upon the gospel. <laughs> I'll be honest, I've never really thought about what angels desire before, have you? Like the longings and desires of angels. I know most of the time my longings and desires are for food or sleep. Like that's what I want. Angels, what do they long for? To just gaze upon the gospel, to gaze into the truth of it which means there's more depth there than you've ever realized. And the way we grow as Christians is not believe the gospel and then apply biblical principles. The way we grow as Christians is we believe the gospel and then we work it out. We work out the implications of it into every dimension of our life. And this is what we see again and again in the New Testament. Paul, when he says you need to forgive one another. Why does he say that? Because unforgiveness is a sin? He doesn't say forgive one another because if you don't, you're sinning. What does he say? Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
When Paul talks about marriage, he doesn't say, here are the seven tips for a healthy marriage. He says, you want to know about marriage? Look to the gospel. When Paul calls people to give financially, sacrificially to the work of the ministry, he doesn't say, you need to tithe. Where's the 10%? Obey the law. You know what he says? He says, for you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich for your sake, became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See, for Paul, it's not like the gospel was here. No, it infused everything. And when I say I want to be a church that is centered upon the gospel, what I mean is I want the gospel to inform and transform everything that we say and do and think about. So we could give a ton of examples. Let me give you one, one or two more to really drive this home. You know, let's take the let's take issue of immigration. And it's something that's debated a lot in our day. And I think that there are certain aspects of the immigration debate that we can talk about, certain questions that need to be asked, questions like how many people can we assimilate into our country in a healthy way? Questions like how do we keep people who want to do violence to Americans out while welcoming others in? There are, there are certainly valid questions we can ask. One thing we can't ask or as Christians or one thing we can't say as Christians with any validity or any consistency with the scripture is, I don't want those people in my country. As Christians, we cannot say, I don't want those outsiders coming into my country. But a lot of you feel that way. Some of you say it publicly. Some of you just think it privately. And so how do we deal with that? Well, we can go law. I can go Old Testament. Welcome in the strangers, care for the foreigners. You have to. This is God's command. And you might do it or you might not, but if you do do it, you're probably going to do it in a begrudging fashion, right? Well, I have to do this, but I don't like it. I think it's kind of stupid. But what happens when you bring the gospel to bear on that situation? When you bring the gospel to bear, you remember that you know something of what it means to be an outsider right? Because we're all outside the family of God. And unless you were raised, like you have deep Jewish heritage, we, almost everyone in this room, we're doubly outside the family of God because we're outside because of our sin, but we're also outside because we were Gentiles. We didn't belong. And you know what? God didn't say, I don't want to be around those people, although he would have had every right to do so with us. Instead, God stepped in. He got his hands dirty and he said, I want you to be a part of my family. I want to care for you. I want to take your burdens upon myself. And if that's the God we worship, how in the world could we ever be people who says, I don't want to be burdened by those outsiders? Take another one, poverty. The Bible is abundantly clear. As Christians, we are called to help the poor. I can go to the law. I can say, hey, here's all the reasons you have to care for the poor. You might do it or you might not. If you do do it, you're not really going to like it. Or we can go to the gospel and say, hey, what does the gospel teach us about poverty? Well, the gospel teaches us that we are all spiritually bankrupt. 
We didn't have two nickels to rub together. We couldn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps because we didn't even have bootstraps. And yet God lavishly poured out the riches of his grace upon us to bring us in, to make us his family. And so how in the world can we say, I don't, I don't want to care about those poor people? Or something I hear more often in the church, usually what I hear in the church is, I'm willing to help poor people as long as they deserve it. You know, as long as they're the right kind of poor people who deserve it. Thank God that he did not say that about us. <laughs> Thank God that he did not look at us and say, I'm going to help you in your poverty if you can really prove to me that you deserve my help. See, the gospel has the power to melt the hardest of hearts, xenophobic hearts, greedy hearts, racist hearts, cowardly hearts. Because it's not just law. It's not just deal with these fruit. It's getting to the root. What's operating within? And why do you feel these ways? And how can you change? Martin Luther said that the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. And I want to read that phrase again. The truth of the gospel, it's the principal article of all Christian doctrine. So he says it's number one. And then he says, in the gospel, the knowledge of all godliness consists. So Luther is saying, you want to know what it means to be godly? Don't go memorize all the different laws in the Bible. Just look at the gospel. Look at Jesus Christ. And that's godliness. And then he goes on and says, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Love Martin Luther, right? He said, what we need to grow and mature is we need to beat this gospel into our heads and into the heads of others over and over again. What really changes you is not learning a bunch of new things, though there's nothing wrong with learning. But what really brings about change is when the gospel moves from your head to your heart, when, you, when it's continually driven in to your head and your heart through prayer, through singing, through fellowship, through scripture, through preaching, through counseling. That's what, <coughs> that's what really transforms you. And that's why as a church, the songs we sing, they're going to be about the gospel. The sermons we preach, they're going to be about the gospel. Our, our community groups, our counseling, the gospel plays a central role in all of those things. And so we only have a couple of minutes left. I want to finish by holding forward three signs of, of both a person and a community that is grounded and growing in the gospel. How do we know this is actually happening? How do we know in all of our gospel talk that we're actually experiencing gospel growth? Well, I'll offer three things. Number one, if we're growing in the gospel, we're going to be a people that is marked by a tremendous amount of freedom. A tremendous amount of freedom. Now, so many people, irreligious folks, but even religious folks, they live as slaves. Like they're afraid. They're afraid of what other people think of them. They're afraid of if they're ever doing enough. They're they're afraid of being confronted. They're constantly self-conscious and always thinking about themselves and how am I doing? How am I doing? Am I doing enough? Was this good enough? And they're really self-obsessive. But what the gospel does is it comes and it brings a freedom to that. What the gospel does is that you don't have to be afraid of, are you doing enough? Jesus paid it all. You don't have to live afraid of what other people think of you because you have the approval of King Jesus. 
You don't have to be afraid of being confronted. Like one of the clearest signs of your understanding of the gospel is how do you respond when someone confronts you? Are you really defensive? I'll be honest, a lot of times I'm very defensive. But if we, if we really know the gospel, why would we be? Of course I'm a sinner. What you're saying is probably true. Like I've done a lot of dumb, thing, dumb things. Thank God for Jesus. See, the gospel brings this, in some ways it's a, a lightness. In some ways it's a self-forgetfulness. It's going to look and feel an awful lot like freedom freedom from running the rat race of trying to justify yourself. Now, that's number one, tremendous freedom. Number two is deep engagement. This, this freedom we have isn't a freedom that causes us to say, well, none of this stuff really matters. Like Jesus did it all, so who cares? The freedom that the Christ gives us, it actually drives us into the world. It doesn't cause us to retreat from the world. You know, a church centered upon the gospel will not be internally focused. A church centered upon the gospel won't just spend all of their time studying theology. You know, if all you do is study theology and your theology in that it causes you to retreat from the world, then there's something wrong with your theology. Like it should push us out into the world to engage with the world, to bring hope and healing to people who are hurting. So you'll see this, this tension of, all this freedom, but you'll also see deep engagement. And the last thing you'll see is an unmatched unity. Because the gospel has the power to create a unity in the church that is unmatched by anything else in this world. You know, at the very heart of the gospel is the truth we've been adopted into God's family. And the bonds between believers, it's thicker than blood. Doesn't matter if you're black, white, brown, old, young, rich, poor, like in Christ, we all share the same dad. In Christ, we all belong to the same house. In Christ, we all have the same spirit, which means we can disagree on all sorts of things and yet still live at peace with one another. One of the things that I've loved about Sojourn is Sojourn's always been a place where people, black and white, people, Republicans and Democrats, people, Tea Party conservatives, you know, and Bernie Sanders socialists, like they can come together and worship. And that's beautiful. And the reason it's beautiful is because beauty is not found in uniformity. Beauty is it's found in unity in the midst of our diversity. And we can come together. And when we come together, that doesn't mean we change our, our check our brains at the door. It doesn't mean we check our political convictions at the door. It doesn't mean we never talk about those things. What it means is, yeah, sometimes we're going to fight, but we fight like brothers and sisters. And at the end of the day, we sleep under the same roof because we belong to the same house. And at the end of the day, we share the same meal together. And the unity that we have in Christ, it's so powerfully displayed in the Lord's Supper. When we come to this table and remember Jesus Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was shed on our behalf, we're reminded of the heart of the gospel, that we're justified by faith. We're also reminded that, that Christ did this, that we might be fueled to go take the gospel into the world and into every corner of our life. But there's another element to communion and that's that it's something we do together. You don't do it by yourself. Communion is something we do together. And so when we come to the table, we can look around and we can say, that's my brother. 
And that's my sister. We belong to the same house. It's a reminder of the deep unity we have in Christ. And so if you're a believer, I want to encourage you to come forward to eat and drink. Be reminded of the good news. Be reminded of the unity we have in our Lord. Let me pray.